what, what, what does Netflix, Amazon, and Spotify have in common? Um, they basically gather all your personal data. <laughs> yes, pretty much, right? Uh, or whatever you have consented for. Um, yeah. So both systems work by a very simple principle, right? Uh, similar people will do similar things. Yeah. Hello everyone. Welcome to a brand new season of Brown Don't Frown, a podcast which was inspired by my own personal story and journey with womanhood and feminism. It's a podcast where we celebrate new perspectives and unconventional thinking. Brown Don't Frown seeks to build a more inclusive discourse which breaks down the prejudice and assumptions about different passions, opinions and cultures and shines a light on the stories of underrepresented women who do not fit the typical criteria or ideals of mainstream feminism. I am your host, Tanya Hardcastle. Stay tuned for what we hope to be an informative, engaging and thought-provoking season three. We have some incredible guests lined up, including other podcasters, change makers in the fields of climate change, artificial intelligence, technology, environmental campaigns, South Asian mental health awareness and bereavement, as well as personal stories in the wake of Black Lives Matter. If you have thoughts or comments or would like to get in touch and contribute to the podcast in any way, please do feel free to get in touch at browndontfrownpod at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Take care and stay safe. Hello, fellow podcast listeners. Welcome to another episode of Brown Don't Frown. On today's show, we're talking about artificial intelligence, pandemic data sharing and gender disaggregated data. I'm really pleased to be joined today by Freddie Kalaitzis. I hope that's how you pronounce your surname. Yeah, that's fine. I wanted to talk about this in a bit more detail after I met you, Freddie, at uh, an AI panel discussion about whether AI is a force for good, of which you were one of the panellists. And I was very intrigued Mm -hmm. by all the points that you made. We can start setting the scene by discussing some initial questions about AI, namely, what is AI? Um, From my understanding of it, and albeit this is going to be pretty limited, is that it's a form of technology that programs a computer to mimic human actions. Mm-hmm. Um, and this data or information about human patterns is then gathered through various pieces of information through mm-hmm. the surroundings um, that it essentially interprets. And by and large, uh, it really does impact the way we live, the way we work, uh, our enjoyment and our entertainment as well. And a lot a lot of the time it happens without us even noticing. So fundamentally, um, I think a lot of people forget that it does a lot of behind the scenes work and shapes mm-hmm. our interactions yeah. in our daily lives um, from shaping our Netflix choices to online shopping habits. We've got mm-hmm. home assistants like Alexa and Siri. Um, so it just infiltrates our daily lives in many different ways. If you want to tell us a bit more about your sure, yeah. interpretation, yeah, and, and just introduce us um, to what you do. Yeah, yeah well said, well said, Tanya. Uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me uh, to your episode. Thank and, you for coming. Uh, first, yeah. let me... <laughs> You're very welcome. Uh, first, let me introduce myself. Uh, my yeah. name is uh, Alfredo Calexis. Uh, people call me Freddy sometimes. And I am a research scientist in artificial intelligence. 
in particular uh, in the type of artificial intelligence called machine learning. And like you very much described, this is a type of AI that is driven by data. It learns by examples. And uh, it learns to connect the dots, really. Uh, just collecting uh, lots and lots of data and figuring out lots of correlations. And uh, once you learn those correlations, you can make predictions. Now, this sounds, sounds very abstract, but uh, I'm very happy to start by describing to you specific examples of, of AI yeah. uh, in, in everyday life. Yes. So, yeah, what is AI? Um, <laughs> uh, so this is actually an easier question you might expect. Uh, let me let me start by asking with another question. Um, what, what what does Netflix, Amazon, and Spotify have in common? Um, they basically gather all your personal data. <laughs> yes, pretty much, right? Uh, or whatever you have consented for. Um, yeah. So both systems work by a very simple principle, right? Uh, similar people will do similar things. Yeah. Although we behave in similar ways. So what, what does Netflix and Amazon do is to recommend you products that are like the consumers who are similar to you, right? And they do this by first uh, measuring the similarity between people. Well, yeah. They construct some kind of a, a metrics of similarity. For example, like two people who are both located, uh, say, in Chelsea, uh, they tend to access Netflix around 10 a.m. Maybe they don't have a day job or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, they also measure the similarity between the for instance, Netflix, uh, say what example, uh, let's say Adam Sandler movies tend to have repeated castings, writers, yeah. and producers, right? Uh, so the problem with measuring here is of, uh, of either type of similarity uh, between people or products is really like a question of, of a statistical nature, right? Uh, and to solve this, any kind of statistical question, what you do is that you collect all tons of data and then you measure the things that are similar and the things that aren't. Yeah. That's really modern AI. Uh, so basically, it's just statistics on steroids. Yeah. And uh, particularly machine learning. So essentially gathering AI. people's instincts and their be pattern, patterns of their behaviors based on other people's behaviors as well and grouping them together basically. into similar... Uh, yeah. Okay, That's that right. makes sense. Right. You mentioned also in this example, so your Amazon recommender, that's AI. Netflix, that's <laughs> driven by AI. Yeah. My personal example these days, my favorite personal example is when I say, hey Siri, what's the weather like today? Or yeah. what's the temperature outside all the way across my house? <laughs> and you can still hear me. Uh, the yeah. ability to automatically transcribe my voice into word tokens and then parse that into a grammar and then figure out the semantics and second order interactions between those semantics. That's all AI driven by data. Because yeah. we as scientists and engineers, we figured out how to measure all these complex data relationships yeah. by examples. That's... And that is a crucial point. Yes. By example means that I don't need to completely understand no. science the nature of language to instill it in a machine. All I need to do is provide it with a million spoken recordings and the corresponding transcriptions. So once we figure out how to capture the complex relationships between these two domains, the voice and the text, then the machine can learn to automatically convert from one to the other, from the speech to the text. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, essentially, just summarizes how AI works, function, how it functions in our daily lives. And in today's episode, I think it's really interesting to, it will be really interesting to examine how, what role AI can play in ensuring information is factually correct, especially in the midst of a, a pandemic that we're facing now. 
and also to look at how AI can play a role in ensuring that the significance of gender disaggregated data is put to the fore and essentially how it can do that I guess but I mean I'm not going to pretend to to tell you that I know an awful lot about this which is why you're here so I think I'll probably let you do a lot of the talking today if that's okay obviously I'll ask you questions I'll open up with quite a generic question um, but you can be as broad or as specific as you want to be with this but to put it simply would you say AI is good for women and would you also be able to perhaps give us some examples of how AI has positively impacted women and examples of when it's actually negatively impacted women as well? I think, uh, like many demographics, uh, and women is much of that, uh, there are more, some certain demographics that are more vulnerable and, okay. than others. And uh, I think the better question to ask is, is, is not what can AI do for a certain demographic, but how um, how not to suppress a certain demographic. Okay, yeah. Um, because AI, the way it's designed these days, it's very much um, centered around the, let's say, the primary demographics, the people usually who, uh, and it starts all the way from, from conception to design, the people who make these decisions and, uh, you know, their backgrounds yeah, influence exactly. how these uh, systems behave out in the wild. Yeah. So if most of the people, let's say, are men, uh, white or Asian men who work for a big then it might be the case, it's fair to say that they might not consider um, pitfalls, no. uh, certain corner cases where the AI might abuse or be unfair to demographics that they don't belong. Yeah. Let's mention an example. Uh, for instance, um, um, Apple had recently received some criticism about um, credit card rejections. Yeah. And uh, that was happening mostly by, by, by women users. Right. And uh, that is driven because the systems, the machine learning systems that learn from the historic data, they have somehow captured correlations that are tied to gender. Yeah. So in order to make predictions, future predictions, they rely heavily on gender information. And that has a massive impact on, on women. Yeah. So um, it can be quite harmful, actually. Yeah. And as you said, you know, it's, it is modeled, AI is modeled by and large on human behavior. And, you know, given that humans are going to be innately biased and the powers that be, which you mentioned, set these sort of blueprints and parameters. Um, and these people tend to be disproportionately men in high places. You know, it's, it's about how we can trust AI or how we can develop AI to be unbiased and neutral and whether anything can be done or is being done at the moment to address these yeah. um, biases within AI. Uh, certainly. Uh, I mean, I did say that uh, the, the better question to ask is how not to oppress uh, people. Yeah. But uh, that's not to say that actually AI is not being used to tackle some of these issues. Yeah. Um, for one, um, understanding... We don't want to sweep under the carpet the gender information. Like some people's approach have been in the past to say, well, gender leads to bias, so let's not measure gender. Right. But that's not the right approach. No. There, there are still cues in data, um, sort of a, let's say, for instance, in, in CVs, in job applications, 
um, a lot of women will have a gap of employment. Yes. Because, uh, you know, women, a lot of them, they, they do get pregnant, so they take maternity leave, they don't work for a while. That's right, so this yeah. gap in, in, in employment uh, will be a pattern if a machine looks upon millions and millions of uh, women to these. So whether or not you do explicitly mention the gender, this gap will still be there. It will still be a cue for yes. the to pick up on. Yeah. And uh, so the problem of unbiasing for gender is more nuanced than, um, than uh, we initially thought. And gender is just one of the many demographic properties. Like, I mean, we talk also about race, yeah. uh, socioeconomic status, ethnic yeah. origin, or genetics. Um, all these things can inform how someone, and this is particularly uh, uh, related now to COVID, is uh, how can inform how someone is affected by disease, for instance. Yes, disease. exactly. And, uh, or how one uh, responds to And... When this information is not collected um, on purpose, maybe either by design or not on purpose, maybe by a lack of uh, or carelessness of the design, um, then these attributes become what we call confounders. So, for example, uh, if we talk, uh, let's say, about the infection rates amongst NHS staff working on the front line, let's say, in ICUs, um, these numbers usually reported in isolation but they don't come with information about gender, age, ethnic origin, right? Yeah. Now, yeah. in certain hospitals, for instance, the majority of nurses in the certain hospital might originate from Spain or from Italy. Uh, if ethnic origin and genetics are indeed a risk factor, then the hiding this information becomes a confounder. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, globally, our public health policies haven't addressed the gendered impacts of pandemics. And we've got campaigners, I don't know if you heard of um, the author of Invisible Women, Caroline Criado Perez, but she's recently highlighted how this huge research gap, um, because of a lack of gender disaggregated data, has led to a lot of issues when it comes to health research and finding um, treatments for people's ailments. So for example, um, one example that I read in that particular book of uh, the book of um, invisible women is, is that heart attacks, for example, the symptoms that men experience have been essentially the default to analyze whether or not someone is, is having a heart attack. And the reason for that is because people haven't historically collected data or women haven't participated in the data process for what mm -hmm. symptoms people experience when they have heart attacks and because women's mm -hmm. heart attack symptoms aren't typical to those of men there's a big gender gap in that sense where when women do have or do experience heart attacks they they aren't easily recognized as heart attacks because there is a lack right. of data when it comes to addressing the symptoms that women experience. They may not get chest pains that men do. They won't get, you know, pain down the right arm that men usually do. And therefore their, right. their problems aren't actually identified as soon as they should be. And that can lead to fatalities. Um, and That's right. emerging evidence when it comes to COVID especially is now suggesting that more women, uh, sorry, more men than women are now dying potentially due to the gendered immunological and environmental differences. So for example, exposure to pollutants from working outside or smoking, there isn't enough data collected in terms of gender disaggregation to determine where, why men are getting, um, are, are being, you know, worse affected than women. It's also 89% of nurses in the UK are women emphasizing the gendered nature of the health workforce and the risk 
that predominantly female health workers face. Is there an answer that AI can provide here where it can drive information gathering techniques which simplify and enable sex disaggregated data to be collected? Certainly, um, there are ways in statistics and therefore AI to tease out um, part of these hidden demographic information. Yeah. Um, and gender is just, as I said, one example, another one would be, might be race or, or uh, ethnic origin. So, and this kind of ties back to what I mentioned about measuring similarity people and recommender systems of Netflix and Amazon. Yeah. So what what the common thread here is that finding clusters of people and uh, we can we we have ways in statistics to find these hidden factors um, based on what we observe. Yeah. It's, it's a hard task. It's uh, it's very case dependent and also depends very much on how much data you have collected. Uh, there are ways, but they're far from perfect. Right. So yes, in this case, we do want to let's say that we do want to. We are interested in covering the gender information. Yeah. Um, and but there are a lot of proxies that we can find to the gender information, yeah. but we can't in, infer it exactly. Like for instance, uh, as I mentioned with the CVs, we can probably infer that uh, certain uh, individual is uh, as a woman, as I said, we, we find the gap of employment there, but uh, we can never be sure of the gender, right? Right, because yeah. Because maybe, 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 maybe they took a paternity leave. Right, which is, which exactly. It does happen, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so it can be inferred, but not deduced. That's what I'm trying to get at. Um, there, so, yeah, there are ways to find these hidden demographic information through, through AI and uh, through the physical modeling. But that depends a lot on a lot of assumptions and requires a lot of data. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very topical issue and not many people appreciate or even understand um, the impact a lack of unbiased data has on um, wider society and our understanding of facts and figures, and this leads me on to the next question. Actually, about um, one of your recent projects that you you collaborated with Amnesty International on um, a project called Troll Patrol, which investigated yeah. Twitter and analysed the extent of abuse against women online. Would you mind telling us a bit more about that? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so this work goes back to um, well, I worked on this from July two thousand eighteen to December. Yeah. And the story behind this is that Amnesty International has been campaigning uh, for quite a few years uh, so that Twitter changed its policy when it comes to protecting its users against uh, abuse, okay. against harassment, yeah. and especially vulnerable uh, communities, maybe so the LGBTQI community, yeah. uh, women politicians, um, women journalists, uh, writers, you know, people who, as part of their profession, they must engage uh, with uh, their audience, right? Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, that means that they're exposed to a lot of trolls. Yes. Uh, right. Now, uh, so this means that Twitter does have a responsibility. This is a human rights issue, and this is why Amnesty International 
uh, was involved. So, Randomness is really good at running campaigns and raising awareness about human rights violations around the world. Yep. But what they lack is the ex- technical expertise yes. to measure, to quantify, to put numbers on some issues. Which is where, now, where you came in. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, this is why we partnered with Amnesty International. And uh, our job was really to help them put some numbers on the issue of online abuse yeah. and to further amplify uh, the impact of, of their social campaign. Okay. And one statistic I remember reading from this report is that women of colour were 34% more likely to be mentioned in abusive tweets than white women and that black women were particularly affected, being 84% more likely than white women to be mentioned in abusive tweets. Was there anything in your research that stood out to you, any particular statistic? And why, why would you say it stood out to you? Uh, so there is an interesting one. Obviously, the one that you just mentioned is uh, is the most striking one, but yeah. unfortunately, not that surprising. No. Um, and the other one that surprised me, because we did uh, this analysis, is this cross sectional study uh, across the different uh, verticals, if you will. Yeah. So we, we, we of course, this concerns uh, this study is exclusively about women journalists and politicians. Profession is one thing that we measure, but we, what we also measure is what is the political leading of the, the individual that is being affected. So okay. we're talking about a cohort of about uh, 800 women in yep. the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, some of them are journalists, some of them are politicians. But also, on the political spectrum, some of them lean more to the left, some of them lean more to the right. Whatever definition or of left or right you might use depending on, on the country. But uh, so we did this uh, sort of a rough uh, uh, cut between left and right. And okay. An interesting pattern that we found was that if um, if the affected woman is a journalist, then it tends to be the case that uh, more right journalists are abused more uh, than the left ones. Oh really? Uh, in the case of politicians, and uh, there is statistically significant difference uh, in against the left uh, politicians. So again, if you're a journalist, it's more likely that right journalists will be abused. Right, uh, but yeah. But if you're a politician, it's more likely that left politicians will be right. abused. Now, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not a sociologist. I cannot comment on that, but the data don't lie. No, no, exactly. That's, that's a really interesting finding because, yeah, I would have never have... Um, thought of it in that way in that journalists if you're if you're a right-leaning journalist you're more likely to be abused or receive online abuse and if you're a female politician with left-leaning tendencies then you're more likely yeah. to be abused but I think I could probably yeah I can probably see the pattern with the latter finding but not necessarily with the journalists that's that's a surprising one definitely really interesting that's it that's it uh if you ignore the profession now, let's say that you do the same analysis, but you only look at left versus right, and you ignore the profession. Then you have parity. Okay. And it turns out that if you ignore the profession, then either left or right women journalists and politicians, they experience the same rate of abuse. Wow, yeah. That's an interesting finding as well. 
And yeah, as you said, you're not yeah. a sociologist, but yeah, the, the data is very, <laughs> very intriguing. Uh, on a separate uh, dimension of the study, we also tried to do an interesting experiment here. Because we collected a lot of data, uh, we crowdsourced a lot of uh, annotated uh, tweets because we we collected all these tweets that um, these women were mentioned in. And then we asked the Amnesty volunteers to annotate these, these tweets. So they looked at them and they said, this is abusive, this is not abusive. And obviously there's uh, some disagreement, of course, in, in some tweets because some are more subjective. So one experiment we did is we tried to see if there's any predictive power in these annotations. So back to machine learning, we wanted to see if if we show a machine thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of these tweets annotated by these uh, by these volunteers, if uh, a machine in the future can look at a tweet and predict whether it's abusive or not. Um, obviously, at face value, there's there's a there's a lot of potential here. One could say that a this here is a case where an AI can protect women, right? Yeah. Uh, can protect a vulnerable demographic. Turns out that abuse in text form is a very hard problem to solve because sometimes this abuse is very nuanced. Uh, sometimes it relies on uh, whistleblower politics. So there are certain kinds of tweets that only the minority which is targeted Right. Uh, can pick up on. So the person who annotates that tweet, the random amnesty volunteer, might not actually um, figure it out. Right. So there's a lot of noise there in the annotations. And if you feed it an AI garbage, it will give you back garbage. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, as you said, it is quite subjective. So if someone looks at a tweet and thinks, oh, this is quite subjective, and also there are times where someone might not pick up on a tweet because there may be you know a, a hidden meaning or some sort of subtext mm-hmm. to it that someone on the surface might not be able to interpret and if that sort of data as you said is being fed to AI then yeah they're going to be problems in terms of interpretation and about whether or not AI can protect um, vulnerable demographic groups so yeah, I guess there's right. a lot more work to be done in that respect oh yes yeah interesting now moving on to more current affairs, what solutions can AI provide in response to the COVID-19 pandemic? I understand that an organisation, um, for example, called Element AI has produced an interactive tool to help visualise the impact that we are having in terms of self-isolating and, and lockdown and flattening the COVID-19 curve. Um, would you be able to tell us a bit more uh, about this um, this initiative? I understand it's called the Corona Calculator um, and in terms of how right. it works. Um, so I'm personally not familiar very much with this work. Uh, this wasn't actually done by Element AI itself, but it was done as a side project by... Um, People, including a team, including preliminary employees, but also uh, people outside of Element. Yeah, I understand um, that. They, I think it was a disclaimer saying that um, they, yeah, there was no affiliation right, right. with the with the organization. So, so there, there's a blog. Yeah, yeah. There's a blog post on on the tool. Um, List uh, the authors. So the authors are Archie De Berger, who is actually an Element employee. Salman Mohammed, uh, uh, forgive me for mispronouncing the names. Uh, Claude Renault. 
uh, Patrick Steves. So these people um, on the spare time did this tool and uh, it's actually a pretty simple tool. So what it does is it takes data sources from, uh, from uh, John Hopkins mapping web app. And uh, there's, uh, it also takes information from uh, hospital beds from the World Bank and population data. Yeah. Um, from from different uh, from different countries, and and then using some uh, mathematical functions, uh, it tries to predict what is the propagation, the rate of propagation of a disease, based on certain assumptions, and and then it gives you levers to make these assumptions. So one assumption, for instance, might be um, how many number of people does someone infected come into daily contact with? Yeah, and I saw that. You can adjust this lever. Yeah, I saw that lever, and, but I'm, I'm really curious about that parameter because if someone looked at the worst-case scenario and someone else looked at the best-case scenario, wouldn't, couldn't that potentially lead to some sort of data bias, the fact that the, the option is there to change the parameter? Definitely, yes. Uh, these mathematical functions are based on uh, some assumptions baked into them, and uh, but this is this is the reason why they give you this disclaimer. They give they tell you in this app where these functions are coming from, and also the disclaimer that the people who designed this uh, this uh, toolkit they're not uh, epidemiological experts. Um, that said, it's a very hard problem to pin down the parameters that yes. characterize a certain epidemic. Yeah. Um, it depends on so many factors. Uh, it depends on the genetics. It depends on the weather. It depends on policy. Uh, for instance, uh, I'm, I'm Greek. Yeah. Uh, I'm coming, I come from Greece. And one thing I am proud of my country is that the fact that uh, they placed a lockdown four days after the first death. And, and now Greece is experiencing one of the lowest yeah. death rates yes. in the world. Very surprising coming from Greece. Uh, so policy obviously has an important factor. Here. Absolutely, yeah. And I think it's also very useful to draw some parallels here with overall um, drawing information. The fact that, you know, at the moment in this current time, we are saturated with news and information and it's available, you know, at a click of a button, you know, it's at our fingertips. And a lot of the time with things like, you know, a massive pandemic or any big, big news that affects the world and impacts the rest of the world, you know, how can AI pave the way in terms of preventing misinformation or disinformation because there's quite a lot of that happening now I think a lot of people are you know being duped into scams there's a lot of fear-mongering going on especially with a lot of clickbaity journalism and sensationalism being incorporated within the way in which we present news and information to to the wider public you know is there a way that AI can ensure that things like fact-checking and ensuring that information that's presented is accurate and not misleading you know can AI achieve that or help to achieve that? Yes, definitely. I, I think there is a way, there is room for AI here to help you navigate um, an informative and accurate internet. Um, I mean, for one, again, it goes back to kind of measuring similarities between articles because um, especially these articles that uh, tend to be misinformative, they usually tend to come from the same sources. 
Yeah. And they tend to be copy-pasting in slight variants. So there are some statistical tricks that we can exploit to, de to detect these fakes. Uh, the other thing we can do is automatically discover and track authorities, people who are experts in their field, and um, you know, sort of a web of uh, a web of a web of trust, like uh, we've very much used now in uh, in modern network um, computer networks. Uh, when you compute, when you're connecting to a random server, for instance, uh, that that server has uh, some kind of credibility. Uh, which was given by network trust. So certainly we can do something similar, but on the level of, uh, of accuracy. Now, obviously, this is not uh, foolproof. Uh, no system is perfect. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, the AI here is, I sense personally that this should be a last resort. I think there is no replacement for proper education and taking responsibility for knowing uh, what is accurate or not. And, so ultimately, you know, it's up to the individual to look at information and be able to decipher whether or not a piece of information is, is valid, whether it's actually accurate, or whether it's, yeah. you know, it's just a load of junk. So you think it's down and, to individual and, responsibility? It is, but also it's in down responsibility of the, the mediator, the person who communicates you the stream of information, and these companies are a confounder. This is another example because these companies uh, like Facebook, Twitter, they welcome you to lock yourself into an eco chamber, uh, this informational bubble, bubble where uh, only what resonates as truth comes back to you, falls eventually into your ears. And very rarely is the case where you will allow yourself to break out of that bubble and look at uh, pieces of information that contradict your own beliefs. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so breaking down those barriers is, is an issue here, and companies have a massive responsibility for that. Yeah, and in terms of what AI can do, ultimately you're saying it's down to the individual. Um, of course, AI can help shape the way in which information is presented, um, but I think, mm -hmm. as you've, I think from what I'm getting from your analysis here is that AI can only do so much before it's down to individual responsibility in terms of what it is they exactly. choose they choose to read essentially and and yeah what exactly. what they prefer. So exactly. yeah, this is not this is not a technological problem. It's not an AI problem. It's a human problem. Yeah, because there is a big. I feel like AI generally receives a lot of critique in the sense that people assume that it can you know it's the answer to everyone's problems that it can solve you know massive riddles which have confused you know humankind for for a long time but i think it is about step-by-step -step process and it is still in development so yeah we need to appreciate that as well i do agree i agree that ai i think this uh receives all that heat uh, justifiably so because uh, you have to remember always keep in mind that ai like any piece of technology is an amplifier yeah. of the human intent um but we have to remember that uh, it's only an amplifier. Yep. That's very true. So yeah. I usually ask my guests to extract a quote from a book they recently enjoyed and what they've taken from it and what it means to them. So if you'd like to tell us about a recent book you've read about and a quote from there. Uh, so my quote uh, actually doesn't come from a book, but it comes from uh, a statistician. Uh, called oh, Jim wow. Fox. Um, and... Uh, 
it's it's kind of a cliche in statistics. Uh, one of the favorite things of statisticians is correlation doesn't imply causation. Uh, but my take on that is that uh, regardless, big, uh, big tech companies still don't seem to care about this. Correlation is still a powerful metric, uh, but it's a myopic one because it's bidirectional in nature. It, when someone sees your correlation, it doesn't convey anything about the direction of causality or whether that correlation is driven by some uh, unknown, unknown factor, uh, some factor which we are not even aware that exists. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I, I I swear I read something similar about correlations, not necessarily the the conclusions that people draw from correlations aren't necessarily the truth. And I think it was an analogy right. of people yeah. of um, students who smoked and students who did who performed badly um, in examinations. And there was there was a correlation. Yeah. People saying people who smoke tend to do poorly um, in examinations, but. Actually, it was found that that's not the case. That's, um, you know, a false positive there because there are many different mm-hmm. factors for why people smoke and actually it doesn't really impact examinations at all. So, yeah, that's an interesting for example. An interesting yeah. analogy. But, um, yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. It's yeah. really well, there you go. enlightening. You're welcome. Thank you very much for coming on to the show. I do need to... I, I feel like I Thank should you. have done more of a ceremonious introduction because you are the first mm-hmm. male to come on as a guest on this show um so prior to that i've only ever had female guests so okay yeah definitely an honorary guest so thank you very much for coming onto the show virtually i hope you enjoyed yeah having a chat i've really enjoyed this conversation i've learned quite a lot from you as well thanks for listening everyone Bye. bye thank you so much for listening i hope you enjoyed this episode If you found this discussion or topic interesting and you want to share your views, we'd love to hear from you. I'm so grateful to those of you who have taken the time to leave me comments, reviews and messages about your thoughts on the podcast. It's really helped inform my direction for this season. Keep your comments coming. I really do love them. You can find us on Instagram, LinkedIn and Facebook by searching for Brown Don't Frown Podcast and on Twitter at BDF podcast. You can also reach me on my blog at tanyasweeklydose.com. Please do join the conversation using the hashtag brown don't frown podcast. If you are listening on Apple podcasts, I'd be super grateful if you could leave me a rating and review as this helps the podcast garner further traction. Please like, share and subscribe. Until next time. Thank you.